Hey guys, welcome back to the Real Estate Monopoly. My name is Kerwin and this is Jeffrey and we are the Donis Brothers. And today we have an awesome guest. Uh, Josh, we actually met you in Charlotte in person for the first time. I'm pretty sure we had engaged on LinkedIn at some point. And um, funny enough, I believe I was supposed to have you on the show like some time ago too. So I'm really glad that like finally able to make it happen. Uh, you have a very cool name. Uh, we'll, we'll share your last <laughs> name soon. So it's, it's like a, it's walking branding as well. But Joshua Ferrari, he's the founder of Ferrari Capital, co-founder of Three Beach Capital, and a full-time real estate investor. Josh has a background as an aircraft technician before he got into real estate. After just four short years, Josh has accumulated over 50 million of assets under management and has successfully raised millions of dollars from various private investors. He continues to educate others through his mastermind program, the Ferrari Capital Multifamily Mastermind. He's also the host of the Creative Capital, where he has gotten over 450,000 downloads with thousands of loyal weekly listeners. Josh, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Um, like I said, we did meet you in Charlotte, and uh, we're just very excited to connect with you on this podcast. Uh, you seem to be very popular on social media. So yeah, um, I think I think it's outdated a little bit. Aren't you over half a million now? Or half a bit? Is it 500,000? Yeah, please. Yeah, 500,000 downloads yeah, yeah. now. Let them know, Josh. Let them know. I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, I mean, if you could kind of just give us a brief overview of how you got into real estate. Oh, man, how I got into real estate. Uh, it was all the way back in January of 2018. Uh, I was 21 years old. I had no previous finance background. Honestly, I didn't even know what a 401k was. I remember I had just recently moved out of my parents' house about six, seven months prior from Memphis, Tennessee, moved down to Southern Alabama to start what I thought was going to be a long-standing career as an aircraft technician. And I remember when they, when I was doing the job interview and going through it, they were telling me everything that uh, was going to be in, included or involved or, you know, pay scale structure, stuff like that, retirement plan. They were telling me about a 401k and it was, you know, you, they were going to match a hundred percent up to like 2% or something. And then it was 50% up to 3%. And I remember as he's telling me this, I'm like, I literally have no idea what we're talking about. Like, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know what a 401k is for that matter. So I remember having to go back and ask my dad, like, Hey, what the heck is this all about? Is this even good? Or are they trying to like scam me right now with this nonsense? Uh, but anyway, so didn't know much of anything about the the finance world. And my dad called me up, uh, recently gotten married, mm. moved my wife down here, thought we were just going to start living the white picket fence, American dream. And he calls me up and tells me that him and my mom are getting ready to start flipping houses. And I was like, that's intriguing. And they started telling me about this program they were going to go through and they're going to learn everything that they need to learn about it and all the money you could make and the time frame it was going to take to do it and how you can actually utilize other people's money to do it. Because I'm like, you guys don't have a ton of money. How are you even going to do this? Uh, and so it was just a very intriguing conversation. Mm -hmm. And that was honestly the first conversation I ever had that sparked my interest in the real estate space. So then my then he told me to read Rich Dad Poor Dad and then the Cash Flow Quadrant and then I read like 38 other books that first year and listened to all the podcasts I could get a hold of. They told me about bigger pockets. So I started getting involved in that. There was four different local real estate investor meetups in my area that I started going to. And my wife and I jumped into wholesaling, tried our hand at that for like six months, but we didn't close a single deal. And we realized, yeah, we keep trying, trying to go this path and ultimately build a wholesaling company if we wanted, but I don't really want to do that. We wanted the benefits of owning real estate. So we pivoted after that first six months, bought a fourplex, which the intent at that point was to house hack it, mm. live in one of the units, rent the other three out, make a little bit of cash, 
ultimately grow the portfolio very slowly, hold mm-hmm. on to that asset and keep buying things kind of on our own. Well, that deal ended up being just a catastrophic event. And we lost $60,000 in that deal. Two hurricanes blew through and like blew the roof off. And it just, there's so many issues and so many problems that went and then happened to us throughout the course of, of that deal. So going through that deal, learning a lot of those lessons the hard way, we realized what we didn't want to do. So we realized, okay, we don't want to do small multifamily. We don't want to do single family because it's going to take way too long. There's no way we could do this on our own. We've just, we've just lost or in the process of losing 60 grand. So there's no way we're going to be able to buy another deal by ourselves anyway. Um, So what do we want to do? So that was when we found the, uh, the niche of large scale multifamily, and then even more specifically the niche of syndication. And I was like, this looks great. This looks fantastic. So we jumped headfirst into that. And about a month later, there was a local real estate. One of the local real estate meetups was having a guest speaker come over from Pensacola to Mobile to talk mm-hmm. about multifamily syndication. That was going to be the topic. I'm like, it's perfect. And go see what this is all about. This guy's got tons of experience. You know, they give you the little bio of the guest speaker. And so I went and listen to the listen to him talk and it was just more solidification of like absolutely this is what i want to do this sounds great um but how do i get started like where do you actually start what do you do i have no idea and yeah. so i remember looking around in the audience and i had been going to this meetup for a year or so now and i had already networked with everyone that was in the audience and i knew that it, everyone in the audience was not interested in multifamily they were all doing their own wholesaling thing or single family flipping or something of the sort and so I was like, there's not really anyone here that I necessarily want to network with, but I want to learn more about multifamily. So, hey, why don't I go try to talk to the speaker, see if he'll give me the light of day, knowing that I have like no experience, you know, yeah. no credibility at all, no value to add to this guy, but I would just love to to talk to him. So anyway, I went up to him, uh, come to find out we both had aviation in common. He was actually a naval helicopter pilot. And so that was kind of how we clicked, started talking about that a little bit, and then transitioned the conversation, of course, into real estate and what mm-hmm. he had done. Uh, talked a little bit about what I had done, the failure that we had experienced. Uh, but then he let me take him out to lunch the following week. And so I took full advantage of that, asked him as many questions as I could. And then ultimately, he actually became like, I call it my organic mentor, because I didn't mm-hmm. actually have to pay him anything. But it also wasn't a forthcoming uh, there wasn't like a predetermined course. There was no yeah. set education that he was giving me. It was yeah. literally just like Q&A. So anytime I had a question, I could come to him and he'd be like, well, here's what I did in that scenario. And here's what I think you should do uh, in your current position and like what your goals are. So I, ha- I found a mentor. Uh, I found my two business partners in about a two year time frame of going hard and heavy into the multifamily industry. Then about 21 months ago, we finally closed our first deal that my mentor actually sold us. He was one that introduced us to the deal. And he was like, Hey, if you can close this deal before the end of the year, and if we don't have to go through a broker, I'll give you a $400,000 discount. And I was like, Oh shoot. Yeah. You know, (laughs) let me tell me more about the deal. So we ended up closing that um, with my two business partners. That was our first deal. It was a 42 unit here locally in mobile. And then from then till now, um, a little bit about what you're talking about. My my current bio, now we have about 650 units, 50 million assets under management. We've got another 40 million under contract right now. Probably raised 10 to 15 million. Started the podcast, started the mastermind. It's just been a heck of an adventure over the last 21 months. 
Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. I love that. And, and it speaks volumes about the importance of like investing in your network. And we've always understood the importance of that. Um, there's a lot of things I want to touch on. Uh, first and foremost, we also started in wholesaling. So we come from a wholesaling background and we completely understand. And like we had closed some deals. We had done it for about a year. Um, and we just decided we, that wasn't the tree we wanted to climb up. We were like, like really? Yeah, we can be successful at, so, at multifamily, at wholesaling. But we could also be just as successful, if not more successful, in multifamily. That was always the angle for us, anyway. Yeah. Um, and you'd also mentioned you read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and and for people that are watching, the book's right above me. Yeah. So and we always point to it, and that's really the thing that um, start, sparked our journey as well. Mm-hmm. And one thing that Robert always talks about is working for assets, not for money. And the rich don't work for money; um, they work for assets, right? And it sounded like you didn't like wholesaling. And if anything, even if it was successful, it was just going to be a higher paying job. Yeah. But just at the mm-hmm. end of the day, that's what you're, and I know, I think you, you didn't mention it yet, but thought you had retired. You left your job. Yeah. Just like two weeks ago. Oh, awesome. Well, congrats, Josh. Congrats. I was going to get to that. But <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say was either way, like if you were to start the wholesaling company, it would have been another high paying job that you would have left your current high paying job yeah. for that. Right. So you're it's like building another cage. Right. But pretty much, you know, that's awesome. And you also mentioned like when you had that $40,000 loss, I want to talk about pivoting because I know you, you talk a lot about that um, and you mentioned that you pivoted. So can you expand on why that's such an important skill uh, and maybe how that manifested itself in your own journey and um, how you didn't see that $40,000 loss as kind of the end? Like a lot of 60. people would have probably, oh, 60, sorry, $60,000 loss as the end. And a lot of people probably would have walked away and decided that real estate wasn't for them. So why were you different? So pivoting is an interesting topic because it's one of those things where, and I think this just may may be for a lot of different instances, but there's a balance of knowing actually when to pivot and when not to pivot. Because if you're just always pivoting, then you're never (laughs) going to be good at anything. You're never really going to be successful. You're like, oh, well, it didn't work. Let's just just go to something else. Right. Because for instance, it took us about two years to close our first deal. So I could have, six months could have gone by. I'd been like, well, whatever, we're not closing deals. Let's do something else. But I knew that was my ultimate, that was the ultimate goal. So pivoting, it's something that I honestly think is somewhat of a learned skill. Uh, pivoting correctly, I should say. Just pivoting in general is something that a lot of people do when they don't see success and they just kind of quit and give up. Uh, but the actual concept of successfully pivoting is something that I had to learn in a way along the way. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of that came from the natural education and uh, experience that I was gaining going through the process of the of the wholesaling and all this other stuff. But it also came from actually having a really deep understanding of what I wanted long term. Like what was the actual vision? What was the goal? Where were we actually targeting? But what's that that one uh, analogy? It's like you can't you can't hit a target that doesn't exist. Like you can't aim at a target if there's no target to hit. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to actually have the vision of where you want to go to be able to kind of reverse engineer that and figure out how to actually get there. So w- initially, when we were doing the wholesaling and we made the pivot to the fourplex in the first place, we were realizing, hey, look, I don't want to build, just like what you guys were saying, another job for myself. We really wanted passive income, the benefits of actually owning real estate from a tax perspective and cash flow. And it all sounded so great. From all these books I'm reading, all these people I'm talking mm-hmm. to that had all this like massive, you know, mm-hmm. net worth and cash flow. And I'm like, I have none of that. And if I keep wholesaling, I'm still going to have none of that. So I would rather do what they're doing, get a little bit deeper into that. And so then we were starting as we pivoted and started getting deeper into into the, the fourplex. 
we were starting to realize, okay, small multis is kind of cool. You know, we, I like the concept of this house hacking, you know, we could do this, we could grow this steadily, but then getting deeper into, into it and so many problems just arising and just being this massive financial pit for that particular deal. Uh, we were like, okay, maybe, maybe this isn't what we want to do. So we actually went on what we now call our, uh, our annual vivid vision retreat, which uh, if you've ever read the book, vivid vision by Cameron Harold, that's pretty much where we got it from. Um, and so we went at the end, it was either at the end of the beginning of, of one particular year, uh, about three and a half, four years ago now. And it was just the two of us before we had any kids and before we had a dog, before we had anything, literally just the two of us went to the middle of the nowhere in Tennessee mountains. Cause we've always loved the mountains and we're both from Tennessee. Um, and so just kind of disconnected from everything and was really able to kind of dig deep, dig inward and think about and figure out what do we actually want? Like, what do we want our life to look like? Where are we headed in the next couple of years? We started this real estate thing, but the the wholesaling didn't work. Now the fourplex isn't really panning out like how we thought. How do we, what do we, where are we going? What do we want this to look like? So we were able to really build a, a, a vivid vision, a clear picture of what we wanted. And then coming off of that trip, that was when we ultimately made the decision that large scale multifamily was what we wanted to dive deeper into. That of course we had to learn a little bit more about that, but the even more specific last thing I'll say about pivoting is that the reason I, I guess you could say that I was different maybe from, from other people mm-hmm. is that when we pivoted from the fourplex to the large scale multis and ultimately staying on that path and end up becoming successful in that, it was for two reasons, really. And the first reason was what we just talked about, having the crystal clear clarity and the vision to understand what we wanted to do so we could pivot properly, successfully. But then the second thing I would say is that I had to dig myself out of a hole, basically. I had dug myself this really deep hole where my wife was has never been super intrigued with real estate. Like she's not really deep in the business at all. And so it was really me kind of leading the way, being like, this is this is what we're gonna do. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna get us out of the out of our day jobs. We're gonna you know, financial freedom, all this great stuff. And she's like, Yeah, sure, sounds great. Let's let's try it. You know, I I trust you kind of thing. And so I took that trust and feel like I had completely squandered it when I lost 60 grand on our first actual investment. So I'm like, all right, it's literally going to take like an entire decade. If I just stay in my job and try to pay off $60,000 of debt on top of the debt that we already had from other things. I'm like, this is just this, this, our life is, you know, quote unquote ruined. If I was to just try to stay in the day job and give up and quit right now. So it's almost like I couldn't quit. I had to keep going because the only way to dig myself out of that hole was to be successful in real estate, make significantly more money, get the cash flow, get the passive income, ultimately quit the day job, pay off the debt. And so I'm like, hey, look, I just got to keep trucking because I've I've taken us this far. And now I put us, we were here and then we went down. <laughs> we went downhill this hole. Now I at least have to get us out of the hole. Like so a hockey stick get back to where the heck we were before uh, I started us on this journey. And then at that point, if we don't want to do it, then we won't keep doing it. But naturally I wanted to keep doing it. So that ultimately led us to this point. 
I love that. And I, I think it's never a straight path. I think that's what we've learned. Um, and we, it also took us some time to really focus on multifamily. We were jumping around a little bit. And so I think it's so important, like you said, to kind of know when to pivot, but also when to really focus. And it wasn't, we didn't really start seeing traction until we started to really focus. Um, and I, I did want to ask, so now, of course, you kind of identified that generational wealth and um, just having that passive income, having that life by design is, is, your, is your goal. Uh, and you have this uh, model called the perpetual perpetuity model, I believe is, I, don't, I might've butchered it, but that is really in alignment with kind of what you just said. Can you kind of expand on what that investment criteria looks like and how that's helping you build a life by design and, and what you're aiming to accomplish with your own life? Yeah. The perpetuity model is very interesting. Uh, I get, I get this question a lot when we talk about our actual investment structure from a kind of syndication multifamily perspective, because we're different than most syndicators, whereas most are doing that five year, five to 10 year. Sometimes people call the 10 year model, the legacy model or the long-term hold. And then most people call the five-year model, like a shorter term flip or burn and turn or something of the sort. Uh, but then we took that and we like 10 x it. <laughs> we went even longer and we're like, hey, look, why don't we just hold on to these assets for 30 to 50 years? Like, what does that look like? How do we actually do, do that, satisfy the investors, satisfy, make everyone happy and make the investment actually make sense? Because a lot of times I think the main reason that a lot of people are doing those shorter term deals is because most investors out there, they want some kind of exit. They want their capital back. They want the upside. They want something so they can go rinse and repeat and do it again. They don't want their money just sitting in a deal for 30 to 50 years. Who wants that? And so that's, I think, one reason why a lot of people don't do it. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the way we've actually been able to structure it is that the investors actually get all of their capital back in just the first two to three years of the investment. And then after that, it's infinite returns for 27 you know, 27 to 50 years thereafter. Um, and so it's an interesting structure. Basically, investors buy in at a, at a 70-30 split is what we've done at least up to this point. They get a 10% preferred return. It's just a fancy term for, for interest rate. Uh, so they get the first 10% off the top of all cash flow that comes off the deal. They get that for two to three years. We'll say it's three years in this example scenario. So with a $100,000 investment example, if an investor came to me and gave me $100,000 in this deal, Three years later, they'll have 130,000. They'll have their initial $100,000 back and their 10% pref of 10 grand a year over year for those three years. Then at that point, they keep the actual equity of the asset. So the 70% pro rata share, anything on paper, really. So they're keeping all the majority tax benefits for the 27 and a half year life cycle of depreciation. Um, and then their net worth. Uh, the net worth would remain the same because their equity share that they technically own would remain at that larger 70% pro rata percentage. Of course, we're also going to do a cost segregation study, accelerate the depreciation and all that good stuff. Uh, but the thing that shifts at year three, the true, what you're talking about life by design piece comes into play for us at year three, when the investors get all their money back. Now for the first three years, we set it up in such a way that we actually don't get paid anything. So that's probably another really big reason but a lot of people aren't doing it because who wants to work for three years and not get paid? Uh, not me. I'll tell you that. It kind of sucked. Uh, but we set it up in, in that way so that we could be as aligned as possible with our investors. Like, hey, look, we're not going to get paid anything and we're going to make sure that you get 100% of your capital back before we actually start paying ourselves from this deal knowing it was going to be a longer term hold. Like the goal is to get you your money back as quickly as possible so we can all get those infinite returns and start really enjoying 
the fruits of our labor with this asset. Mm. So at that point, once three year three happens, they get 100% of their capital back. The cash flow, any actual cash put off by the asset, then inverts. Now, some people call it a waterfall. We just call it an inversion because it's it's quite literally that. So the 70-30 split that was initially 70% LP, 30% GP, it's now 70% of the cash flow goes to the GP and 30% of the cash flow goes to the LP. So with 70% of the cash flow on the GP side, uh, as far as life by design goes, uh, that averages out to be on a deal by deal basis about six figures a year passively per GP per deal. So once those inversions happen, it's almost like an atomic bomb of like, hey, we haven't got paid anything for three years, but all of a sudden, boom, this massive, you know, now we're starting every quarter when we're paying out distributions, it's like, you know, 30K, 40K, 50K coming in, this is check you get and you're like, oh my gosh, this is insane. You know, I've never seen cash flow like this before. Uh, And so that's, that's the, where the true uh life by design the true mm-hmm. passive cash flow comes into play and then of course we're holding those assets for another 30 to 50 years so i can expect yeah. to see that cash flow and of course it's probably gonna, even going to trend upwardly uh, mm-hmm. as we continue to keep pace with inflation and rents grow natural appreciation forced appreciation all that good stuff we're going to continue to get more and more cash flow and more and more uh, equity as we continue to yeah. Grow, grow in the future. Uh, and so the perpetuity model is very interesting. Then the 30%, of course, that the LPs still get. Whereas sometimes I, t- I tell investors about this or I tell GPs about this. And they're like, well, why wouldn't you just buy out your investor and take 100%? And I'm like, yeah, you could do that. But I want the LP, I want the investor to benefit long term, just like we're going to benefit long term. I want us all, I want it to be this massive, like win win scenario. So we, of course, we keep them in the deal. Their 30% share is then infinite returns and they get infinite returns for 30 to 50 years of like, Hey, look, 30 years from now, when you're old and gray and you not even wanting to do this anymore, you forgot you made this investment because you got all of your money back 30 years ago, you know, you just keep, you just continuously getting checks in the mail. Uh, And maybe when, maybe you pass, maybe 30 years goes by and God forbid you, you passed away. Well, that, cash flow is then just going to go to your heirs. So however you've set up the wheel, have you decided to set up the structure of the investment, we will just then be contacting your heir who then gets the cash flow and you change the bank or have the same bank account or whatever, but the cash flow is going to keep coming. We're going to make sure that you your share continues to get paid out. And then on top of that, 30 to 50 years from now, when we do eventually decide to sell, I'm tired of this deal, mm-hmm. we've got better, better whatever maybe that, that's coming around the bend, I mean, you got to think, who knows what the value of the property will be 30 to 50 years from now. We could right. make $100 million. We could make $200 mm-hmm. million. And then that'll be split 70% to the GP, 30% to the LP. So the LP got their money back 30, 50 years ago. And now suddenly their heirs or them being super old and gray are going to get by with a $100,000 example, they could get $3 million, $5 million check yeah. just in the mail. Like, yeah. And it's, it's just a very interesting model that yeah. not a lot of people do. I think one, because it is very long, long-term, mm-hmm. you are having to manage that asset for a very long time, but wanting true passive income, wanting true generational wealth for myself and my business partners wanting the same thing. And a lot of our investors clearly wanting the same thing as well. We've set it up in such a way that we're kind of building this business where eventually we'll have a full-time asset manager. We'll have a full-time acquisitions manager. We'll have all those pieces of the puzzle in place. Mm-hmm. 
so that it's quite literally, uh, I guess not entirely a passive investment for me on the active side, but significantly more passive than it would be if I was trying to do everything on my own. And so we're able to pawn a lot of those things off and we can go do whatever the heck we want to do, work a four hour work week, like the the book mm-hmm. says, or do whatever the heck, have true passive income at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's awesome. It also solves the problem of having to realize that uh, capital gain when you do sell and having to pay taxes on it. Obviously, if you're not going to sell, then you're not going to have to do that. And then they do get their money back and they get to participate in the cash flow. That's uh, that real estate is awesome and produces, which is a uh, tax free in regards to they're not getting taxed on that. Right. So that's amazing. I mean, I've never heard of anything like that, to be honest. Yeah, we really were like, that's what I was really, I wanted to expand on that because most investors, like you mentioned, they have like that five-year flip um, and that's kind of the model that most people do. And um, I would love to know if you can expand on like the debt that you're taking on the, on the initial house. Like, just probably, yeah, go ahead. Uh, is long-term Fannie Mae typically? So there, uh, believe it or not, there's more benefits and more bonuses to the deal that I didn't discuss. I, <laughs> I wanted to stop being long-winded, but as far as the debt side goes, we either go in with bridge debt. We've done that one or two times. Uh, obviously bridge debt is not the best thing to utilize right now, or we go in with a local community bank, which the downside of that, literally the only downside of that. I mean, the terms were fantastic with local banks, the interest rate was lower than most other lenders were providing mm. at the time. Uh, there was the terms were great in terms of not having to. There's no prepayment penalties. There's no yield maintenance. Like there's no none of that. And so it was very beneficial for us to utilize local banks. Only thing being that fifty to seventy five percent of that debt is recourse. So it's going directly on our balance sheet, and you're you know limited on how much extra recourse you can have. Mm. And so that was how we initially have grown our portfolio, because then once you actually execute on the refi year three, when you return back hundred percent of the capital, then you transition into agency or you transition into some form of debt. That's not recourse. So it goes off mm-hmm. the books and you can continue to kind of grow your rap sheet in that regard. So from a debt perspective, that's kind of what we're entering into the debt as we've mm-hmm. also utilized seller financing. We've also done loan assumptions before. Uh, there's a lot of different creative strategies you can utilize getting into these kinds of deals, but primarily the local banks, uh, the bridge debt, those are some of the things we've utilized getting into it. And then on the transition, on the uh, exit, so yeah. to say, year three, when we implement the refi, then we transition into that non-recourse debt. And so then on the plus side of that, for most of you guys that know, or most of you guys that don't know, the natural life cycle of debt is anywhere between five to 10 years, which is probably another reason that a lot of investors exit deals mm-hmm. in five to 10 years. They just utilize the life cycle of what debt looks like. So every five to 10 years after they get 100% of their capital back, we do a cash out refi. And the reason we do a cash out refi is the natural life cycle of debt being one of them. And the second reason being that you think about holding an asset for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, 10, 15 years from now, the roof's gone bad. The HVACs are going bad. The interiors are outdated. So you got to update those to continue commanding market rents. The parking lot's rough. The water heaters are going out. We need new appliances. They're busted. And so you got all these larger CapEx items that you got to pay for. So obviously month over month, quarter over quarter, year over year, we're setting aside uh, working capital. We're setting aside capital and reserves to continue funding those standard you know, turnovers and routine maintenance. But those really large items, they're going to come from equity that we pull out of the actual asset. So year three, they got 130 grand. Five years later, let's say we do another cash out refi. And let's say this cash out refi 
we've since over the course of the last, you know, eight years, we've increased the value of the asset by $10 million. Well, for super simple conversation sake, let's say that we can pull out the full 10 million. We're not over leveraging ourselves. Everything's still in the green, enough capital set aside in reserves. So we pull out the full 10 million. We only need 2 million, let's say, for fixing the roof, replacing whatever we got to do. So we set aside 2 million. The other $8 million is going to be distributed 70-30 to GPs and LPs. So not only have the LPs gotten 100% of their initial investment back in year three and infinite returns for the last five to 10 years, but every five to 10 years, they're going to get another large, what we call a Christmas bonus in the mail, which could be another 100 grand, 200 grand, 300 grand. It could be significantly more than their initial investment that they made. That would be infinite returns, super passive that they didn't have to do anything for. Yeah. They got their initial capital back and they got it back tax free because it was a refinance and not a sale. So no depreciation recapture, no capital gains. They could take that money, they can invest it into another perpetuity model deal that we have or whatever they would like to do with it. Then every five to 10 years, they get large, super large checks from equity cash outs that they can utilize to do whatever they want with it, also tax-free. Uh, and then, of course, what we were talking about with the sale, then it's all the upside that is just ridiculously massive because of how long mm -hmm. we've held on to the asset. Uh, so that's kind of the life cycle of the debt. That's the way we've kind of structured it. And it's... Yeah. Is, again, it's very unique, very unique model. No, I love that. That's so cool. And I, I, I was listening to your story on some of your podcast interviews that you've done, and you mentioned that there was a time before real estate that um, your perspective on debt was like you were going to get into a lot of debt, and you were kind of okay with that. And then um, you realized how, I guess, uh, concerning that was that if the potential of maybe your children could potentially inherit that debt if something were to happen to you or something like that. And I, I just thought it was really fascinating because that was like where your perspective and mindset was when it came to debt before real estate. And now you're using debt in a really unique way. Can you maybe just briefly kind of just provide some context as to how your perspective on debt has changed? Yeah. So back then, my perspective on debt was that all debt was bad. It was a Gordon, Gordon Ramsay, Dave Ramsay, <laughs> Dave Ramsay, uh, analogy of just that all debt is bad debt, no such thing as good debt. I actually went through Dave Ramsey's what he calls Financial Peace University, uh, which I think was like an eight or nine week course, of course, that he dives all into all that stuff. And when he started talking about the concept of debt, it was scaring me a little bit, but I was also right in the middle of the fourplex when I was going through that. And so I was like, I just feel like there's something not right here because everything I've learned being in the in investment space, mm -hmm. everything's different. But my mindset prior to that was definitely that all debt was bad debt. And if I had a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt, I mean, that's not, I have to actually pay that out of my pocket. I'm the one that has to pay that back. And so I'm kind of slave to the lender, so to say. Uh, there's actually a, a verse in the Bible that says you're, you're always slave to the lender. I'm like, I don't want to be slave to the lender. <laughs> heck, I, heck, I want to be a slave. So I was always scared of debt from that regard. But diving deeper into the multifamily realm, the, the real estate realm, I started to realize that there's certain debt I could utilize that'll not only allow us to get into a deal and get into a deal at a great basis and provide great returns by leveraging that directly with the way that the economy functions and, and everything else. But I also didn't have to pay that debt. Like if it's a non-recourse loan, it's not directly coming back on me in the first place. Mm -hmm. And if, if I'm utilizing it to purchase an asset, that's going to more than pay for itself and give me cash flow on top of the debt I'm putting in place. I was realizing that, you know, let's say I've got a, a property that 
I pay a million bucks for, uh, and I'm able to get a 75% loan to value. So $750,000, the bank's going to give me, and they're going to charge me, say, a 4% interest rate on that. And then inflation goes up to 9%. Okay, well, I'm basically getting paid 5% to own this asset with this debt that I didn't, didn't have to pay for in the first place because the tenants are paying for it. So I am now getting to use in inflated dollars to pay for <laughs> debt yeah. that is worth significantly less than what cash is actually worth today. And I'm not having to pay it. The tenants are paying. So the tenants are paying that off. Then any additional cash on top of that is just cash flow that goes in my pocket, which typically continues to progress and keep up with inflation from natural progression of inflation and natural progression of rent increases and things of that nature. So th this is a conversation that could, we could spend hours yeah. talking about, but the simple, simple piece of it is that there definitely a hundred percent is a difference between good debt and bad debt. And once I figured that out, I was like, I need to get some more of this good debt because it's actually going to build me wealth. That's going to change my life, change my family's life, change future generations life. And then I'm going to be able to take the same knowledge, experience and skills and talents that I have from utilizing this and doing this. And I'm going to be able to impact others from a passive investor perspective or from an active investor perspective, from starting the mastermind and teaching other people how to do what it is that I've done. And then the podcast, educating other people from that regard. And then social media, trying to be ed an educator there as well. And just really making a larger impact from this new knowledge that I have that's directly against what like 90% of America thinks to be true. Um, and I've just been enthralled with the business ever since. Well, I love that. That's awesome. And I, 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 you mentioned it earlier in the show, but congrats on now becoming, I believe, uh, you're a full-time real estate investor. Um, are yep. you also financially free, if you don't mind me asking? Have you reached that point? Fine. Yes, financially free from the, from the lens of you know, my definition of financially free, I feel like a lot of people have different definitions. Yeah. My definition is that I make enough income passively to more than pay for my expenses. Uh, and so the expenses are paid for from real estate, passive cash flow, and then additional additional income on top of that to kind of keep up with the lifestyle that we yeah. had, which was my personal goal. It's like, I don't really want to change my lifestyle. So sure. I don't want to quit the day job until we, uh, until we make enough cash flow there. So we hit that threshold about three weeks ago. Um, awesome. and then about a week or two ago was August 1st, actually, uh, was the first day I went full time. Nice. Awesome. I yeah. That's so exciting. And it's very inspirational to not only us, but I'm sure to our audience as well, because that's the power of real estate. Um, and so, you know, now is right now it's really interesting times and we, it's probably going to be our last question before our speed round, but I did want to kind of ask, what is your economic outlook on like the multifamily space? And, uh, I guess, what are you seeing coming and how are you preparing for it? It's a great question. Um, and I talk about this a lot because of course this is a question that a lot of people are very curious about mm -hmm. and I don't the heck if I know exactly what's going to happen, but mm -hmm. here based on my knowledge and education and what I'm currently seeing in the market, just being deeply entrenched in the market, here's what I'm seeing take place over the last three to four months, interest rates have started to rise. So interest rates, whereas previously literally debt was insane. You could get a deal or debt for like 3%. So sometimes even sub 3% if it was a single family home. Uh, just crazy, crazy low interest rates. And so what we've seen, of course, over the last couple of months is interest rates have started to trend upward. Now, I don't really know where single family interest rates are at because I don't keep up with that too much. But as far as the commercial side of the, of the house is, we're at about 
we're peaking 4%, getting into 5%. I've still seen some loans transact at less than 4 per or less than 5%. Those are typically the local community banks. Uh, but mostly what we're seeing as far as agency goes and larger lending companies, we're, we're past 5% market, maybe five and a quarter, five and a half percent, something along those lines. So as interest rates have trended up, as they've moved, typically what you see in the multifamily realm, in the commercial realm, is that cap rates trend with interest rates. So cap rates usually will go up as long as interest rates are trending up or vice versa. Interest rates are going down, cap rates are going down, competition's re-entering the market, and prices are skyrocketing. So what I think we're going to see is over the last two, three, four years, when we saw interest rates just continue to decline and decline and decline, competition got absolutely insane. Cap rates were compressing like crazy. And the average cap rate over the course of class A, class B, and class C properties was it was all a four cap, right? It was all three or a four cap, absolutely ridiculously low. It didn't matter what asset class you were purchasing. The competition was so incredibly insane across basically every market in the entire US that you were buying at a four cap. So what I think we're going to see is A-class assets, I think they're going to remain at that three to four cap. I don't think we're going to see much of any movement with A-class. There's still opportunity to be had there. Uh, it just, you need to be a little bit more strategic if you're still buying A-class assets, or you need to just be of the understanding that your returns are going to be significantly lesser, just like they were back pre-COVID, uh, buying A-class. Um, so I think what we're going to see is B-class and C-class assets are going to trend. Those cap rates are going to trend back closer to where they were pre-COVID. So what we're going to see for B-class assets is they're going to trend closer to that five to six cap price point. And then C-class is going to go all the way up to about a seven to eight cap, depending on the market that you're in. So when we see those shift, when we see those cap rates actually move, we're going to start to see seller sentiment move. We're going to actually start to see sellers comprehending where the market actually is at. And there's going to be significantly more buying opportunities for those that are acquiring B and C class assets. Now, because cap rates are going to trend in an upward direction, upward direction for those assets, what I also think we're going to see is there's going to be a lot of investors that bought over the last two to three years, which interesting statistic for you, over 70% of all commercial investments, all commercial acquisitions that were made over the last two or three years were made with bridge debt. And if you know anything about bridge debt, we know that they're on about two to three, maybe four year life cycles if you implement one of the one year extensions. Mm -hmm. So those two to three years are starting to come to an end. And now with interest rates higher, their option of a refinance is diminishing because interest rates are higher. Cap rates haven't quite moved yet, but as they start to trend as well, the actual appraisal value, which the bank is going to use to give them an actual refinance, is going to go down. So now, not only is their leverage going to shift, but their valuation is shifting, and they're not going to be able to return the same amount that they initially thought they were going to be able to return to their investors. So they're either going to take the hit, hold the asset, try to implement any kind of extension that they can, and just wait out the market a little bit to see when they may be able to shift. But even then, cap rate's still rising. They're not going to be able to get the same returns, even if they were to sell or implement on a refi later down the road. Uh, so what I think is going to happen is there's going to be a lot of investors that start to get scared, start to get really needy, 
and eventually start actually selling their assets. So I think over the course of the next six to 12 months, we're really going to see a lot of transition on the buy side and on the sell side, bringing prices closer to where they were pre-COVID, a lot less competition in the market. And I think the opportunity, uh, creativity even more so specifically, I've already seen over the last couple of weeks, a bunch of deals come across my desk where the broker's like, hey, a seller is willing to do an assumable loan. They're willing to get their loan assumed. They're willing to do seller financing. Like I, I just heard about a guy that got a 75%, hundred like basically 100% owner financed uh it was 30 year term, 3.75% interest rate, uh, 10 or no, 30 year amortization, 10 year term, just insane. Mm -hmm. And it was a hundred percent owner finance. It was like an 80 unit in some tertiary market. And so I think even more specifically, a lot of the tertiary and secondary markets are going to get hit a little bit harder than others, specifically in those B2C class areas. So if you can find a secondary and tertiary market, the B2C class asset, the seller that's struggling, which is going to be probably most of them depending on the life cycle of when they actually acquire the deal, then there's going to be significantly more opportunity on the buy side, specifically with creativity, because we haven't really been able to utilize creativity in the last couple of years, because it's always been best and final, best and final, best and final. And it's like, hey, look, if you're not $10 million over asking price, then forget about it. I'm not interested in you. So now the little guy is going to have a greater opportunity to get in with more creativity, with more persistence, more focus in specific targeted markets and not just this big blanket of like, I'm interested in any market because competition's crazy and wherever I can find a good deal, that's what I want to do. You're going to need to focus a little bit more. You're going to need to niche down. And that's really going to provide you some significant opportunity, I believe. So over the next six to 12 months to go all the way back now that we know a little bit about what I believe is to be happening, uh, we are setting ourselves up in a position for mass acquisition mode. I mean, we're ready to acquire. We're already acquiring. We've got two deals under contract now. Um, but we're putting ourselves in a position from both an equity perspective, raising capital from investors, as well as a relation like broker relation perspective, you know, new lead gen deal flow. Uh, and just overall liquidity, kind of like capacity to tackle these deals. We're putting ourselves in a position to take full advantage of these new opportunities that are getting ready to present themselves, starting to kind of re-educate ourselves on a lot of the different creative options that are able to be utilized um, and starting to actually implement those in some offers that we're presenting because they're, they're out there now. We have a deal now that is literally an owner finance deal and we got it under contract like two months ago. Yeah. And so owner financing is definitely possible right now. Now more than ever, this is going to be a great, a great time to start to implement and execute on those specific kinds of offers. I mean, I literally had a broker send me an email five minutes before we got on this, on this call. And he said, you remember that deal I showed you like three months ago in this market? Uh, and you said it wasn't going to work unless the seller was interested in owner financing. It's like, well, now he's interested. So, uh, you know, here, here's the updated financials. Here's the updated data. Let me know what you think. So of course I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but mm -hmm. sellers are starting to realize that if they want to exit their deals and if they still want to get pricing that they wish they could get three to four or they could have got three to four months ago, then they're going to have to start getting a little bit more creative yeah. in order to actually achieve what they need. And it's not even achieving what they want. It's quite literally achieving what they need because from where they bought, from where they're at with their debt cycle, it's becoming a necessity. And so it's providing a lot, lot of opportunity on the buy side. We're definitely going to shift to a buyer's market mm -hmm. over the course of the next six to 12 months. I think we already kind of have, 
but the real estate market's kind of like a hand grenade market where we've pulled the pin, the government threw the grenade into the market by raising the interest rates and sellers just have, it hasn't quite exploded yet. They haven't quite realized that they're not going to be able to get what they can get, at least on a larger scale, which I oh. also believe is why cap rates haven't trended yet. So we're really waiting for the cap rates to start moving, appraisals to start lowering on those PDC class assets specifically. Um, and I fully believe there'll be significantly more opportunity. Yeah, no, I'm sure there's like a lot of people right now that are scared, but uh, it's also kind of an exciting time because like you said, it's a lot of opportunity and I believe there's going to be a massive uh, transfer of wealth in, in real estate assets in this case. Um, so that's very exciting for people who are like you and I are in acquisition mode. Um, it is time for our speed round. Josh, are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. Let's get into it. First, I did want to know, I know you talk a lot about books you read. Um, what are some two top books that have helped you in business and life? <sighs> business and life. Well, the life book is, wait, do these have to be business books you said? They could be either or. Either or. The book that helped me the most in life, I mean, honestly, it's the Bible. But if, if I had to name another book, uh, the, the book that changed my life the most is probably... Um, probably Joe Fairless's big red book. And that's mm -hmm. just because that was the first book I read. Uh, it's like best ever apartment syndication advice or something. And yeah. it was the first book I read when I was looking to get into syndication and larger multis. And it's not even because that book's like a fantastic book, but it's a book that clearly and simply lays out like here is exactly what you need to do mm -hmm. to be successful in the multifamily realm, in the multifamily business. And so I just started utilizing some of those avenues and it was a, a game changer for obviously my life now uh, over the long run. But then in the early phases, it was a game changer for my business. And I'd say the second book that changed my life. Oh, there's so many of them. I got so many books I'm looking at up here. <laughs> uh, the second book that probably changed my life was actually um, Extreme Ownership. So Jocko Willink's book, who was there with us yep. in... Yeah. Charleston. Uh, when I read his book, the first time I read it, I was very much, I don't know if you'd say like prideful, I guess. Like I, I didn't take very much ownership in a lot of the things that were happening in my life. And so after reading that book, I realized if I just frame the way that I approach things differently, not just from a business perspective, but from life, from marriage, from you know, being dad, from everything, then if I start trying to take a little bit more ownership of the things that I've done, then that's really going to what I felt like benefit me. And it has, it has over the long run. And I still, still struggle every now and then maybe I need to read the book again, but uh, I'd say that was, that's probably the two books. That's awesome. Or the three, the three books. No, I love that. I'm definitely going to read those. Um, so kind of looking to the future, what are you aiming to accomplish more long-term? I know you touched on it, but what is your long-term vision for your business moving forward? Our current vision is actually right here in front of me. Um, it's it's the three-year outlook. You write it three years ahead from when you're currently writing it. And I wrote it kind of like a newspaper article. So I wrote it in third person as if some, some journalist is writing about me and my company and what it looks like three years in the future. And so we, we would like to get $100 million assets under management. So again, we've got 50 million now. We've got another... 40 million under contracts. So we're close. Yeah. Uh, if we, once we close these deals, we'll be close. Uh, but 100 million assets under management is what we're targeting, roughly about uh, 1,000 to 2,000 units. My actual cash flow goals I'd like to have $50,000 a month in passive income. Uh, 
and obviously I feel like we'll surpass that with the deals we have now. We just have to wait for those inversions to happen. Uh, so that's kind of like the financial goals we continue to progress. But if, if we look at it from even more of, of a macro and micro level, then uh, we're looking to hire about three to six people over the course of the next year, year and a half uh, to our team to have that full-time acquisitions manager, have the asset manager, have all the different pieces of the puzzle. So we start to live a little bit more of a, of a passive lifestyle and really start trending uh, in a much more significant growth trajectory, as well as kind of like stabilizing what we have without having to utilize a lot of our time. Then I would also like to make a, a real impact on the communities that we actually invest in. Uh, so the community itself, like let's say we're investing in Mobile, Alabama, I want to make an impact not only on the apartment complex that we buy, but the local community as well. Uh, and so we're still kind of like figuring out what that's going to look like, but we know we just want to make a larger impact, not only on the tenants' lives, not only on our lives, not only on our investors' lives, but the entire community as well. Yeah. Uh, then I would... I personally would love to be able to raise for a multi-million dollar deal in like 24 hours. Like I would love to have a deal that we need like $10 million capital for, and I can just blast out an email or send out a blast text message and raise 10 million bucks in 24 hours. That would, that's a, a goal of mine. I also would like to reach over 2 million people from my podcast, uh, like to make an impact from that regard. And then I started the mastermind about three, four months ago. And so I would like to actually, currently we have 11 guys in there now. I'd like to get about 30 people in the group. And ultimately I would just like to help everyone that joins the mastermind really start to completely and utterly change their life, change their life from allowing them and teaching them exactly what we've done and how to build a seven to nine figure multifamily syndication business and change change their life for the long run. So really, I'm just I'm just in in the business at this point for changing lives. The money's great, but it's not. It's kind of like a tool that we utilize mm -hmm. to change lives. Uh, and so I would say that's kind of our our long term vision. Yeah, no, and that's awesome because real real estate it can help you, but it can also help everyone around you. And so that's really powerful. And you shared a ton of wisdom today. But if there was one piece of advice that you'd want someone to walk away with from the episode, what would that be? One piece of advice, I guess we'll go back to the, the the pivoting thing that we talked about a little bit, just knowing when to pivot, being strategic on pivoting. And then the second piece of the, of the advice to the pivot is actually understanding and knowing what it is that you want to do. So I guess what I should have said when you asked books that changed my life, Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold was obviously a book that completely and utterly changed and pivoted the trajectory of our business. Mm. So that's a book I would recommend reading and then actually putting together your vivid vision. So you understand where you want to go, what that looks like uh, and being able to pivot within your, within what it is you're looking to do. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Josh. It was a pleasure chatting with you. If anyone in our audience wants to learn more about you or just kind of follow you on your journey or maybe even learn more about your mastermind, where can they go to do that? They can go to Ferrari Capital. That's F-E-R-R-A-R-I capital.com. And all the information is there. Social media info is there, all that stuff. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time, Josh. And thanks everyone for tuning in today uh, to the show with the Donish Brothers. We would love to have you leave a five-star review or comment if you like the episode. And if you get value from it, share it with a friend. Make sure you repost on social media and just reach out to us. We're at Donish Brothers on every social media platform. Thanks so much for your time, guys. Thanks, thanks Get out there and take action.